Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Pfizer now says Canada should extract six doses out of its initial five-dose vaccine vial. We have the details. How does this vaccine shortage affect political leaders? Is the Prime Minister's popularity going down due to the vaccine shortage? And the Donald Trump impeachment trial has begun. Will it be successful? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Back in class, back in a mask, and back of the line for vaccines. Here's hoping you adults can come out soon too. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Find out what you're doing, where your head's at on this Tuesday. Feel free. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. All right. Uh, lots of chatter. Uh, in regard to where we are today, uh, the latest information, I guess, coming out now is that Health Canada has approved the relabeling of the Pfizer vaccine, which will now uh, allow them to get six doses out of a vial instead of five. Here's what uh, Brianna Carnegie had to say in regard to that sixth dose. Health Canada has approved a label change for Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine vials. It will now state they contain six doses instead of five. Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Supriya Sharma says the extra dose can be extracted reliably and consistently with the right technique and syringe. The Government of Canada is supporting provinces and territories by making a sufficient supply of low dead volume syringes available in time for the first doses of vaccine distributed with the new six-dose labels. The label change is expected to begin for next week's shipments. It allows Pfizer to send fewer vials to Canada while still meeting its contractual obligations to send 40 million doses. About 4 million of those are expected by the end of next month. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, we talked about this before. There was, uh, I guess, before uh, a few months ago, a rumor started floating around about how we could get that six dose out of that vial uh, with uh, a new type of syringe that, that uh, obviously uh, holds less waste and, and, and allows that to get into the arms of, of uh, those that are being vaccinated. Um, that being said, what are your thoughts on this? What are the challenges uh, now that we've moved to this, to this six dose uh, vial? I mean, the original idea behind the six dose was that they were worried that uh, initially with the five doses is about overfill. So Pfizer's instructions were that we should leave a little bit left in the vials uh, to allow for this concept of overfills that in case we need them or that we don't need, we can discard them accordingly. But this new regulation, what it does is that it just clarifies that we can actually maximize the potential of the vaccine, which is great news overall, overall because it means that we will never have sort of a wasted vaccine left. However, I mean, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of the segment, that it does not change the agreement we have with Pfizer. We're still going to have the exact same number we've agreed upon, uh, and they're promising to deliver that in March. We'd continue with supply after March to reach our goal. I think it was around 40, 400 million or something around that uh, with Pfizer. So that's, you know, I think that we're going to see continuous changes in, in the sense of when we're going to get those shipments. I don't suspect uh, that it will be confirmed that we will get those on time. And you and I will probably will be discussing this as time progress. Uh, you know, and, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. We can all, all play Monday morning quarterback with this. But boy, doctor, you've got to be thinking about how many doses we've already wasted at this point by not extracting that sixth dose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the reason why this is going into effect immediately, because I think the government recognizes that this was probably something that we should have paid attention to closer at the beginning. Uh, I mean, but however, I will say this, that, you know, it's not like they've had a COVID vaccine before and that we've learned from it. We're learning as we go along with the vaccine. We're realizing that, you know, it's a new it's a new way of doing it. It's It's the largest ever mass vaccination that Canada has ever undergone. And with that comes a learning curve. And 
the idea here is that you know we can be less critical about mistakes, but we have to be very critical about how quick we fix them. And I think that's what the government is trying to do today. And they're saying, okay, you know, we recognize that this could have been six, uh, you know, doses out of the vial, so let's quickly immediately put it into effect. So uh, with the, the new syringe, and we understand that they are on their way to the provinces, they've already arrived in Canada from what the uh, PMO has said. Um, what sort of challenges does this present for the provinces who have already sort of started a, a distribution system? What do they have to do now to retool for this? Well, I mean, I think we've heard that there's already enough syringes to begin with and that we're trying to secure more syringes to accommodate for this change. In the meantime, I think the provinces are just following suit on the order. And so with this going into effect immediately now, they're probably going to be looking into how they can adjust their procedures accordingly and, and to maximize the number of doses, doses they can get out of each vial, which might be a good news overall. But I think time is going to tell in terms of data and how many people we can get vaccinated within the next couple of weeks. All right. Uh, case numbers are down uh, across the country. Uh, I believe in Ontario today, it's 1,022. Boy, that's still an awful lot, but uh, it's also come down an awful lot. Your thoughts of where we are, Ahmad? I mean, it's, it, it, in a way, it's very good news, Scott, because it tells us that the lockdowns that we had in place and measures do actually work, which is reassuring, because the last thing we want to hear is that all those measures and lockdowns that we're suffering through and that businesses are suffering through are not working. And then we're left hopeless because by the time we get the vaccine, we need something else. And what we have at our disposal right now is really just social distancing, public health interventions, and this strict measures. And so to see the case numbers reducing, they're not where we want them to be, is good news. Uh, to also see that the hospitals are being able to accommodate patients and our IC units are not at full capacity as they were at some point, that is also good news. What is really worrisome right now is the variants we're detecting, especially in Toronto now. Toronto is becoming the only city uh, in the world that arguably has the three variants that have been detected from the UK, South Africa, and Brazil, and all three have, are, now, are, sorry, are now known to be very highly transmittable, which is very, very scary for all of us involved. All right, before we get to the variants, sure. Doctor, um, we have seen the numbers go down. We talked about the post-holiday surge, all that sort of thing. But uh, really, this is a time also to, to to give credit where credit is due. And Ontarians, Canadians, it, this is a result of a lockdown, isn't it? This is a result of everybody just hunkering down, the, the drop in cases yeah. that we've seen. Absolutely, Scott. I'm really glad you brought this up because I think we need to hear that. You know, we're all uh, suffering big time from just being locked in. I mean, it really has not been the easiest couple of weeks for us and months. And, and you know, we need some kind of reassurance from our public health experts to say that, uh, you know, the, the lockdowns are paying off. And they are. I mean, we look at the numbers, data speaks for themselves, right? We started off with, remember when before the lockdown, the emergency act was put into place, we were around 4,000. Uh, and right now we're around 1,000. Do we want it lower? Absolutely. And I suspect that if we continue, uh, you know, really huckering down and not trying to, you know, socially engage with other people outside our household, that we can get to a lower number than that. And that is the goal eventually. All right, let's talk about these new uh, variants, Doctor, in a bit more detail. We're obviously hearing uh, AstraZeneca in, I believe it's South Africa, suspended use of that because they're not uh, confident that it can handle some of these new variants. I guess at the end of the day, the longer it takes to vaccinate us, the more issue we're going to have with variants. Is that accurate? Yes, because, I mean, that's the concept that we're trying to say now, that like if, if we, you know, one of the ways that we can get ahead of this variant is that if we continue the case numbers in the community to be low, then we can focus our resources on genetically testing samples for this variant, identifying them, isolating them, reducing the spread of them. Because in the, until we can get mass vaccinations to happen, that is our only sort of strategy moving forward. I mean, the last thing we want, Scott, is to have uh, those strains be, you know, very highly transmissible throughout our, our country. That's going to cause a third wave that I don't, I'm not sure we're capable of handling. Um, that being said, obviously, uh, these variants are going to continue to outpace the vaccine until uh, we get the herd immunity and the vaccine getting ahead of uh, the variants. That being said, does it look, doctor, like we're going to have to have a vaccination like this every year or so? Yes, I think that we will probably be looking at having, I mean, the earlier reports are already kind of alluding to that, which is that saying it would be similar to the flu vaccine. So every year we might have to change it a little bit. But the idea is that by then, 
you build enough immunity globally that you know we can surpass this massive influx of case numbers and strain our health system. So we, you know, COVID will never. I don't. I don't suspect COVID will ever go away. I think that what we will come to have have is that we'll be able to adapt to the COVID nineteen. We'll have vaccines that are you know a little bit changed every year to accommodate for any new variants. But in the meantime, what we really need is global vaccinations. I mean, we engage a lot in the conversations about Canada and its vaccination plan, but Canada's vaccination plan is only one way to succeed against COVID-19. We need the entire world to be vaccinated in order for us to really have COVID-19 behind us and for it to become like the flu every year. Why would AstraZeneca be coming, or why would AstraZeneca have a problem with some of these variants, but the Pfizer and the Moderna not? We've heard no reports from them having issues, and, and most have said, although, yeah, it maybe doesn't make it quite as of, as effective, it still is quite effective against the variants. Why one, not the other? It's still not clear. I mean, it's not clear why AstraZeneca seems to be, you know, or the manufacturers behind AstraZeneca is making that suggestion. I mean, are they? is that based on early reports of vaccinations trials that have been going on uh, in other parts of the world. We're not really sure yet. I think that we're going to be looking closely at that. Uh, but also, I think Pfizer and Moderna are actively looking whether their vaccines are working against this new variant, especially in hotspots. So I suspect that they're going to be looking closely into Canada now that we have those three variants in our communities to see whether we are, as we vaccinate more and more people, uh, is this happening? I mean, the other concerning thing, Scott, is that we're hearing early reports that people who have been infected with COVID-19 are actually are getting infected with the new variant again. Um, and yeah. so that's, that's quite dangerous and, and that's scary to look forward to in terms of whether the vaccine will work to protect those populations that are already vulnerable because they've had the virus before. Wow, it's amazing to think that a vaccine may work better in one part of the world than another part of the world. Um, let me ask you another question, and I'm sure there's no answer to this one either, Doctor, but um, I understand that Africa is leaving that AstraZeneca on the shelves, Zeneca on the shelves until they find out how it affects the, these new variants. Why not just go with a minimum amount of, of protection and you got the vaccine, just use it? I mean, that's a great question. I, again, I don't have a specific answer for it. I think that countries are deciding on their own how they want to play out the vaccination plan. So we are hearing that, you know, some countries are really hesitant about putting out the vaccine, that people, populations in some countries are saying, you know, great that you have AstraZeneca, but we don't want it. And so yeah. it, it really, it, it, many, many different factors are playing into it. I mean, I read reports from other parts of the world where they have the vaccines available for people you know, requesting people to come take it, and people are not actually going to get it because they're still fearful. There is still a vaccine hesitancy. And we're going to learn more and more about that moving forward. And I think that's why a lot of countries are investing a lot of resources, Scott, to make sure that they educate the public about the benefits of the vaccine, just really to come ahead of this vaccine hesitancy that might be happening. Is there any way to protect? We certainly hear about the new variants, um, and certainly the fact that they transmit uh, uh, the, the, uh, just a lot quicker, a lot more effectively from from person to person uh, than the than the standard strain. Uh, is there any different way to protect yourself against this uh, these other variants, or is it the same protocol? Same protocol. I mean, personal protection, room with proper with the proper ventilation. You know, you're reducing your risk of getting the, 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 the virus. I mean, you know, I think it's easier to just keep it basic, which is that we know that the virus is trying to find a way to get to you. And so if you don't give it that chance, you won't get the variant. And so or the COVID-19 original virus. So, you know, minimize your social interaction outside of your household. Continue to practice things. I mean, I also want to give it to people, Scott, because I think that all of us. People who have been in part of this, which everybody, part of this pandemic, have learned also on our own. You know, we, we're not looking so much for the experts anymore for advice. A lot of us know uh, what worked and what didn't work. If you have mm. not been infected with COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic, it probably means that you're practicing some kind of uh, tools or you are following the interventions to, to a certain measure. What I will tell you as an expert is that please continue doing that and be on high vigilance. So if you're thinking now that you might relax some of the things you've already been putting into place, I, I urge you not to do that. And public health experts are also urging you not to do that because of the variants. Because of the existence of the variants, it's more time than ever for us to really, you know, make sure that whatever we've been doing well, we continue to do it. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. You take care. You too. Thanks, Carl. All right. On that note... 
Here is today's daily commentary. Although still in the darkness of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is nice to see a glow at the end of the tunnel as new cases continue to fall due to strong protocols and a lockdown. The good news is the lockdowns are starting to loosen, but ever so very slowly. This relieves the state of emergency the province has been in since January 12 due to the spike in new cases and will expire this week. The stay-at-home order is in effect for another week when non-essential businesses can reopen with restrictions. Many are complaining about how complicated this all is. And it is. We're in a global pandemic. However, it only becomes complicated when more and more is added to the mix trying to please everyone. The other alternative is to shut it all down until safe, and I'm not sure that is an option. We have what we have until more vaccine arrives. And no one suggestion is going to make it any better until that happens. So do what you can and spread the love. We're almost there. I'm Scott Thompson. This week, tens of thousands of Pfizer vaccine doses will be delivered to Canada. This is good news for so many people who will be getting their dose. We know we all want to feel that relief of getting vaccinated of watching our loved ones get vaccinated. We're all eager to know when it's going to be our turn. I can tell you we are still very much on track for tens of millions of doses into the spring and for everyone who wants to be vaccinated, vaccinated by September. Once again, there's the Prime Minister selling September, and I'm not sure that's good enough for Canadians who are watching uh, other countries whip past them uh, in vaccination. Uh, Still Canada, under 3% of its population has been uh, vaccinated. Uh, The United States, up over 10% of uh, its population uh, has been vaccinated. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, for the politics of all of this, and he is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you. Your thoughts on where we are and and obviously the vaccine shortage that Canada finds itself in. And what is that? We're seeing numbers uh, slip for the popularity of the prime minister. Your thoughts of the politics of all of this? Well, I think uh, it's a situation in which uh, Canadians sort of feel uh, they're way behind the United States. I mean, you you mentioned uh, how many, what percentage is covered in the U.S. And, of course, they see it. Uh, Canadians see it on the American news when they tune in and they see all these people getting it. And, of course, a lot of people have relatives in the States, as I do. So my my younger sister's already been vaccinated in North Carolina. My wife's uh, younger brother's about to be vaccinated in uh, in Connecticut. And his, and his wife has already been vaccinated. So, you know, so people know people. It's not only what they see on the news. They know about people in the United States who are actually getting this. And they say, well, you know, what about this? How come our government uh, has failed us on, on getting the vaccines out to, to Canadians? So this, this is a bad week. I mean, a bad time right now for Canadians. Of course, you add the fatigue of the winter, the fatigue of being locked down, the fatigue of not being able to cross our borders. And the government also announced it's going to make it a lot more difficult to cross our borders, uh, cross the border from the United States into Canada. So really to discourage people from leaving the country, you know. So that all of that makes people very unhappy. And so what the premier is basically saying is don't, don't think about where we are right now. Think about the end of March when we're going to have all these vaccines uh, in shots coming in, and uh, then you'll be feeling a whole lot better. Uh, obviously, um, a lot of this shortage centers around our inability to produce. However, uh, it certainly has come out in the last several months that we do, in fact, have the ability to produce. We just need uh, some focus in, in the right direction. We obviously know of the situation in the U.K. Where, where they were very much in the same place Canada was at the start of all of this, but now are producing their own uh, as a result of this. Uh, are you? And, and then when that deal, or uh, sorry, when I guess, it was Sir John Bell came out and said, you know, Canada should be doing this too. Within a couple of days, uh, the Prime Minister announced the Novavax deal, which, you know, Canada would start producing. This is an American company that would start producing in Canada, but again, won't be ready, up and ready uh, till 2022. Are you surprised that he isn't talking more about production deals other than like these, you know, the vaccine shipments? It is what it is. I mean, you know, we bought as much as we can. We're now waiting for them to arrive. Uh, I don't think there's much more we 
we can do to speed up that process. Are you surprised he's not spending more time talking about getting more Novavaxes like that, companies like that up and running? Yeah, the problem is it's, uh, well, the problem is, is it, 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 he's not going to be able to get those vaccines produced, as you pointed time, out, until yeah. next year. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, if you... But many are suggesting, Henry, that this is going to go on for a while and we may need a vaccine every year. So why not just keep talking about capacity and, and producing more, at least to draw attention away from all of this? Yeah, you could do that. But at the same time, it draws attention to the fact that we don't have enough of vaccine now. Yeah. And, and I think what's really at work here, and something that I've, I've thought, and I've, I think I've probably mentioned with you more than once, uh, is that I think for, for the longest time that the, the, pre, the Prime Minister has been focusing on an, an election in October of this year. Mm. And, and if you listen to how he talks about dates, so for example, every, he started out a little a while ago, everybody's going to have a vaccine by, by, by September. Then when things started getting a little dicey in terms of, these, you know, of getting the two vaccines coming in the way he expected, then he switched for a while there. Well, everybody's going to have the vaccine by the end of September, right? I noticed today he went back to the beginning of September. He's a little more optimistic. But, of course, if he's having an October election, he's probably going to call it right after Labor Day. He wants everybody to feel great. They've had the vaccine. We've conquered the whole thing. We're all over with the lockdown. And he's the great savior, and everybody should vote for him in, in the October election. He's, we also saw today that he deferred a, a problem that some Canadians have, that they owe interest on CERB money that they've got, uh, yeah. that they shouldn't have gotten. And, uh, and he says, oh, by the way, you're not going to have to pay that back until 2022, hmm. which, is at, which, which would be after an October election. So it's not only important what he's saying, it's also putting the dates together, and he's trying to have us focus on good things that are going to happen ramping right up to October and postponing bad things from happening until next year, like paying interest on you know, Serbs that you shouldn't have had. So uh, the fact that he keeps, you know, uh, the reporters are just hammering him with questions, and instead mm. of answering the questions, he just keeps going back to that end of September date. Right. Is that helping him now or just frustrating Canadians even more that all he keeps hammering is September, 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 we'll all be vaccinated? Well, the thing is right now, People, yeah, people are going to say, we don't have it now, and we're unhappy. And he can say that all he wants right now. But, of course, if, if it turns out the way he, he expects, that everybody who wants to be vaccinated is going to be vaccinated by the, by the beginning of September or sometime in September, that when he's on the campaign trail, he says, I've lived up to my promise. I've been telling you yeah. that everybody was going to get it by September, and, you, and, and I've delivered. So... He's really worried about us being happy with him on Election Day or, you know, in the run up to Election Day, because you got to think some people vote ahead of time. But, yeah, that's when he wants us to be happy. He doesn't have to worry about us being overly happy today because there's no election in February. So the whole thing is focused on everybody feeling great in September and particularly the beginning of October when we're likely to have an election. So, wow, that's uh, that's that's great observations, Henry. That's why you're the political science professor, yeah, and we're calling quite, you. Quite frankly, whenever we've had a minority government in Canada, usually you can uh, spot when you're going to have the election by by listening to how things are announced and the dates that are associated things. He's also previously, I can't remember the program a while ago, he announced some program, I think it was for business, I'm not 100% sure, but he said, oh, this money has to be spent by the end of August. <laughs> I said, yeah. oh, yeah, there's another, there's another spotlight on, on, on an October on election. On the fall, yeah. You don't want to give people money and not have them spend it before the election, after the election. You want to make sure they spend it right, right before the election so they're feeling good. You want, to have people, you want people to feel, I'm healthy, i got money in my pocket, uh, I guess I'm going to be nice and, and vote for the, for the prime minister. But, but minority governments almost always act that way. And, of course, when a government is going uh, on a regular four-year term, you can bet your bottom dollar in the last year of that uh, mandate, suddenly you're going to have all sorts of money coming out of the government for various things, health care and whatever. Whatever people are worrying about, the money will come out. And, yeah, so the politicians are generally, uh, you know, generally quite predictable if you're used to, you know, listening to him and, and hear him, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, 
set, you know, put the spotlight on, mm. on when they're going to have an election. And also, by the way, it used to be, it's a little harder now, but I know one of the first things when I was young, I, when I got my house the first time, I said, gee, it's very, very interesting uh, that uh, we would have an uh, increase in the city taxes in one year, and the next year, no, virtually no increase. And then the yeah. third year, we're back up. This is the time when we were having elections. This is a long time ago when I was young. And, 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 and we were having elections every two years. Now, it didn't take me too long to figure out that the taxes went up right after the election in the non-election year. But suddenly in an election yeah. year, some, our councilors and our mayor found a way to give us, you know, very, very little in the way of a tax increase. So, you know, politicians are pretty predictable that way. So, Henry, let's assume that uh, that this all happens as per the prime minister's uh, wish, that by September or the end of September, beginning, what have you, uh, we are all completely vaccinated. That the mass, you know, the, the, the shortage that we're seeing January, February, March, uh, it's going to come all piling in in the spring. Right. And we do uh, end up getting a majority of us vaccinated by the fall. Is that e- enough uh, to to make Canadians forget about where we are now, I I think given what we're going through, given how people are just so unhappy, you know, even if their head tells them, okay, I got to stay home, I can't have uh, parties at my house, I can't go visit, you know, people, I can't I can't go down south for the for the winter, uh, or at least for a week, uh, all of that. Uh, he's just hoping, and I think he's probably right. People are, you know, if, if it goes according to his plan, people are going to feel so good in, in September and October. The weather's still relatively decent, and suddenly they're not in a lockdown anymore, and they feel healthy, and they feel that we've put the, the, the virus the, the, behind us. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I quite frankly would bet that that's a, that's, the, that's a pretty good strategy. If I were him, I'd want to do that, uh, because that's the best best time. And I think, just think, looking at uh, Ontario, which has the most seats of any province in the country, what he wants to do is he wants to also get an election before the, the provincial government goes uh, for its election, because he knows there's all sorts of people, for various reasons, have, have a grievance or something they don't like that the provincial government has done, even apart from the you know, from all the various measures that the government, the provinces had to do. And so what he's hoping is that, of course, he'll, he's going to have, you know, probably once again, he's going to make the conservatives the bad guy, pick, you know, go out after the leader of the conservative party. And he's going to, you know, and essentially say, well, he's just like Rob Ford, Bob, Rob Ford, and he's done this, you know, he's done this thing. He's in favor of this. He, you know, he's not in favor of that. And, and he has to have a, an enemy and uh, he's going to Are Canadians still going to buy all of that stuff though in a post-COVID-19 world? It seems our priorities are a little less fashionable nowadays. Well, I I I tend to think that, you know, when we get to that point, people people respond to that in terms of the communications and what they do in elections, they do. Now, there are certain things that people are going to remember about Trudeau and there's certain groups of people who essentially are going to say that, no, I don't like, you know, I, I don't really like what he's done. I, even all the things he's saying and the good things he's saying, we're talking about September and October, I really don't buy it anymore. He's been in there for six years. I'm a little tired of him. But by, by, not, by attacking the conservatives, there is a group of people, and actually they have been expanding over the last 20 to 30 years, that are between the liberals and the NDP uh, in general. Like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it used to be a band of about 10%, and they, these would be, be people who were sort of, pro, you know, sort of progressive, uh, progressive, uh, you know, progressive liberals uh, or moderate NDP. They were they would go back and forth, and we've seen that band exp- uh, sort of get wider and wider. And the result has been, <clears throat> for example, about you know nine, uh, almost 10 years ago. When the NDP came in second in the in the federal election, we see now the NDP is a <clears throat> official opposition in Ontario. Uh, that that band of people is getting larger and larger, and so the the fight in it, at that point is going to be in in the, in the fall. Can Trudeau get a majority of that group, which he did, you know, when he first right. ran, or is this not, are a number of those people going to say? 
uh, I don't, I'm tired of Trudeau. I'm not really, I really don't like the conservatives. Well, maybe I'll go over to the NDP. So how that, bizarre, though, is it, Henry? Dynamic, I think. How, and, and, you know, that's a very interesting point, splitting the left. But how bizarre is it that everyone is fighting over the left, meaning the extreme left, going closer and closer to the NDP and leaving the center wide open? Yeah, except the band. The, the, I think the center of the population, you know, if you would ask me that 30 years ago, <clears throat> I would say this. I would point to study after study by political scientists and pollsters and everybody that the, that the, Canadian, the average Canadian was a little bit right of center. I don't think I don't think that's true anymore, and I think that I think there has been a drifting, particularly the demographic change, with younger the younger population, plus um, a reaction to what we've seen down in the United States. The people have really drifted over a little more over to the left to center. So, so the but it's not it's not the extreme left. It is really people who some days can vote get excited about Trudeau and the next day get excited uh, excited about the uh, about the NDP and it just depends on how they're you know feeling about the leaders at that particular time and uh so so there's certain things that happen how long they've been in we you know it may be if the liberals have a leader that people are tired of or really don't like then they're going to you're going to get more people drifting over to the NDP. But you know what I think Henry, I think you you know what Henry, I think you're going to see the rise of the Green Party before you see the rise of the NDP. I think the NDP has spent too much time going in a socialist circle and I think people are are tired of the extremes especially when we see uh you know uh, us move to more simpler things and what we need to survive i.e. being self-sufficient. I think they've gone too far to the left and I think you're going to see the Green Party actually go past them and cuz I remember talking uh, to Mike Schreiner, head of the Ontario mm. NDP, or sorry, uh, Ontario Greens, right. and he said, don't paint us as being a left party uh, farther left than the Liberals or the NDP. That is not the case, and pointed to Green parties in places like Germany, where, you know, they're, they're certainly more fiscally conservative. So I think you're going to see the day, because, you know, the NDP have been preaching the same old, same old forever, and, the, you know, they make a bit of a dent, then they go away. And let's be honest, the only real success they've had is when they've had very mainstream leaders whether it's a Jack Layton or a Bob Ray or what have you. So I think you're going to see the Greens come in and invade that space uh, as much as the Liberals uh, uh, turning left. Uh, you know, I, I really think that uh, in a post-COVID-19 world, people want results uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, being taken care of. I mean, we've seen what happens when we're in a country that isn't self-sufficient uh, compared to others that that are. I mean, you, you know, we, we need to bring that back to Ontario. Another question I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, early on March and April during this pandemic, when the UK jumped on board and started to produce its own vaccine, being in the same place that Canada was, uh, the prime minister was working on the, the CanSino deal out of China. And that actually was a production deal. But of course, uh, the Chinese government pulled the plug on all of that as soon as it came time for testing, which sent uh, the prime minister into the line uh, of purchase as, as late as August. August. Uh, is that signing of that Cancino deal, is that going to come back to, to hurt him in any way? Is anybody questioning why he's still hammering to get deals with China when, in fact, they're, they're beating the bejeebers out of us at every turn? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I mean, I think, quite frankly, I think most of the population is not paying attention to that. I just don't think the, the concern about Canada's relationships with China reaches a large, large group of people. I just think basically we're centered on right now the, how miserable our lives are with this virus, and we want to get over it. This is number one. And for a whole bunch of people, it's the economy as well. They, you know, they're, they're not making the money they should be making or they're piling up debt. I just think people are just focused on those two issues. But I'd also come back to what you say about, you know, the Greens. Mike Schreiner, listen... I, I love talking to him. I love hearing him. The, he is absolutely, you know, great. I mean, he's, I think he's the most eloquent person probably in the Ontario legislature. But if we talk to, we look at the, how people view the important issues, you'll, you'll have a lot of people say, yeah, the environment's important. It's becoming more important. But most of the people never rank that higher than fifth or sixth on, their, on, their, on what's an important issue. And I, that is really a hard, hard, you know, a hard uh, mountain to climb 
for the, for the greens. And I also would point out the European greens are different than the uh, than than the uh, uh, greens here in uh, in Canada, uh, or and the NDP in Canada. The big problem what has happened to labor groups in in, in uh, Europe, particularly on the continent, they were based on your manual working class, and you know, and that po- percentage of the population has decreased dramatically mm-hmm. as we've got automated uh, automated factories and things like that. Uh, so they have gone down. Now, the NDP here is, is actually based on that at one point, and the farmers out west. Well, they lost the farmers out west, but they also can't, uh, are, have basically got a newer group here. They have been appealing basically to younger people, young, university-educated people, and they, get, they have been getting more and more positive response from them. So I, don't, I really don't see the NDP, you know, going out of business in, in the way that the Italian or the German uh, labor, uh, labor, you know, were, uh, social Democrats have gone. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in, 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 in the fall, assuming if we do have an election. But I think I'm, I, you know, I don't think the NDP is going to do dramatically well in, uh, in October. But I think they, overall, I think they're going to gain seats. How many they're going to gain uh, at this point, I can't tell. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, The Politics of a Global Pandemic. Henry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move down to uh, the United States. Uh, The impeachment managers are walking to the Senate. The second impeachment trial of uh, Donald Trump is now underway. Let's bring in Thane Rosenbaum, Distinguished University Professor, Truro College, Director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, and a legal analyst with CBS CBS News Radio, and is with us now. Thane, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. So what are your thoughts about this uh, impeachment? Uh, many are predicting that uh, there certainly isn't the Republican votes there to impeach. Uh, why bother with all of this? That's, that's the devil's advocate question. I know, Scott. It's an odd, it's an odd scenario. Uh, the Biden administration has a lot of work to do. Uh, they want their cabinet officials and other appointments to receive confirmation from the Senate. This essentially shuts down the Senate because they're involved in an impeachment trial against a private citizen where there are constitutional and jurisdictional issues, whether they can even bring such a criminal prosecution against a private citizen, where the remedy, the primary remedy is to have the president removed from office when he's already removed. Similarly, they need 17 uh, Republican senators to defect and vote to convict the president, and they can only get five, which means they know they can't even prevail with this trial. So then the question is, well, then why do this? And I guess one reason is to just keep Donald Trump in the news. I think the more they demonize him, perhaps it just you know gives them they've, they've been playing that card for a while, and it seems to work, the smart political move. And the second issue is you know historical justice. Maybe they believe that what happened on January 6th is such incredible gravity that it needs a historical record, that the Senate needs to create a record of what took place, even if the remedy in this instance doesn't work. Is there validity to that side of the argument? Um, And and many, I guess, are still debating whether you can impeach a non-sitting president or not. Your opinion on that? And, 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 And again, at the end of the day, will this presentation change any minds? Well, you know, there's. I I think I'm in the minority view here. Um, I I don't. I the Constitution again is always uh, you know ambiguous. Um, but if you speak to the direct, look at the direct language of the Constitution, the primary remedy, which requires a two-third majority vote, is to remove the president. And so that issue is now moot. He's not removable. There's a second piece to this that requires only a 50% vote which is the disqualification from future office. But that requires first that he get convicted. And as I said to you before, they don't have the votes for conviction. Forget the jurisdiction. Even if they had the jurisdictional uh, issue resolved, uh, they don't get to part two, the disqualification, unless they get past part one. And in terms of what the conviction, you know, the evidence right now 
is to, there's, it's all, since they're not going to be calling witnesses, apparently, is all the video footage of the storming of the Capitol. But remember, you know, it's not clear to me that the president of the United States isn't entitled to a, his own First Amendment right under the Bill of Rights to engage in political advocacy. And unless he engaged in, in language that incites imminent lawlessness, meaning using specific words that told people, directed them what to do. Now, again, the House impeachment managers are saying that that's what happened, but that's not what it looks like, because I think the president used words like, you know, um, uh, you know, go peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. So, you know, you have to have a connection, a nexus between what he said and the violence. And I'm not sure that they can establish that causal proximate connection. Where does this leave the Republican Party? Um, is it in their best interest to support that base and, and become the party or be the party of Donald Trump? Or is it in their best interest to cut bait right now? Well, again, 45 of the 50 Republican senators voted against this impeachment process, essentially had a preliminary vote, sending a message to the Democrats. 45 of the 50 of us are not going to vote in for, for conviction. So you ought to know that before you pursue this. And the Democrats are pursuing that anyway. So I don't know if that means that that means that they truly support Donald Trump. I think what's possible here is that, you know, you can't you don't know what to think. Seventy five, seventy four million people voted for Donald Trump. And if you're a Republican who has you know, even, you know, uh, misgivings about the Trump administration, you still have to deal with the fact that President Trump managed to reach 74 million people who he spoke to in a way that no other Republican had in a generation or more than a generation. He, he, he spoke a language that was simply not being heard by anyone else in the United States, where red state Americans felt that they were being uh, you know, called racist and, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the word deplorable, right? That Hillary Clinton. Used. Right. And Donald Trump was a genius at figuring this out, that this Ivy League elitist Hollywood centric, Wall Street centric people are not the Walmart people. <laughs> and that crowd is is still 50 percent of the country. Red state Americans didn't necessarily go to college and don't like to be preached to by professors. And he picked up on that populist spirit. And I think Republicans know that he's still holding on to it and that maybe they need to stay close to him. Like, you know, Donald Trump is a rabbit's foot because it's his voters. It's not clear that they would easily transfer over to any other Republican. So in the end, Thane, does America want more Donald Trump or less Donald Trump? It's such a really interesting question. Half the country or more than half the country despises Donald Trump in ways that I've certainly not seen in my life, the hatred of another of a political leader. Uh, and th- if you go on Facebook or social media, you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, it's a kind of violence almost as if you, people, families are breaking up in the United States for people who have, are considered even mildly supportive of the president. You know, friendships have broken up. Kids, parents are refusing to send children to play with other children if they see a Trump sign on. I mean, this is what's really going on here in the state. It's really a team sport, isn't it? Like, there is no yeah. center. Either you're on that side or you're on this side. What happens yeah, to no, the center in yeah, all of this no thing, nuance, which is where the majority... No it's where is the center, though? Because that's where I think the most of the Americans are sitting. Where, where is that? Who's representing them? You know, that's the thing. I don't know if there is a center anymore. <laughs> I wish there was. That makes sense. America always used to, you know, Bill Clinton figured out how to triangulate, find that center. There's many American politicians who were really a little conservative for Democrats, a little liberal for Republicans, and that's where they were, and that's where the country was. But, you know, again, you have people who despise this man, and yet you have 74 million people who not only voted for him, they will come to Washington for them. <laughs> they will stand out in the rain and cold to hear him speak for an hour. Um, and they, again, it's because they did believe, rightly or wrongly, that he was actually 
listening to them, respected them, uh, knew what they needed, and was, was truly was in their own corner, represented them. And I think there's a significant number of Americans that feel that representative democracy is not looking after them. And yet you, now we also have a progressive, that's what I'm saying, I think the extremes have really evolved because we have a, a yeah. progressive movement in the United States, which we've, I've also not seen for 50 years. Um, and that movement, too, the question is how much control will they get over the Biden administration? We don't know. Right now it looks like they have an influence there. But that progressive movement, Scott, really ticks off Trump voters. <laughs> So why at this point, why would this, why are there not Republicans that are, that are, that are regrouping and saying this is a turning point for this party? So, uh, we don't want Donald Trump. We do want his base. So why can't they find a position, a policy, a candidate who appreciates the concerns of the disenfranchised base, but has a ton more credibility, honesty, morality than what Donald Trump has? I mean, yeah. is there a not is there not a great Republican out of there that can represent the base's uh, views without being a Donald Trump, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah, it's really an excellent question. We saw this in 2016, Scott. There was a lot of Republicans looking for the presidency. Different, you know, they're very different. They came in different shapes and sizes. Um, but none of them resonated with the people that, again, Donald Trump seemed to energize, mobilize people that didn't even vote before. I mean, they just showed up, right? All of a sudden they were willing, you know, uh, they were willing to do anything. Uh, and I think that there is, you know, we have shown ourselves to be a very divided country and an angry country, bitter. There's bitterness on both sides. Yeah. The Black Lives Matter movement and the progressives, there's a bitterness and anger associated with that. And the very right-wing, alt-right, Republican, uh, Trump supporter are not really party-oriented. You know, they're, they're Trump-oriented. And I think that's really what the problem is, that Trump played it like a showman, not as, you know, a, 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 not as a president. In fact, he, hmm. he relished the idea that he wasn't presidential. So when you say, can't you find someone that's less Donald Trump? Well, yeah, there are. The question is that he played to a portion of America, the more irreverent that he was, the more insulting, dismissive he was against the elites, the press, the professors. They loved him more. Yep, and I'm not sure point. there are any other Republicans that want to play that card. Thane Rosenbaum has been with us, Distinguished University Professor at Truro College, uh, Director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, and Legal Analyst with CBS News Radio. Thane, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. Let's bring in Bill Galston, Governance Studies, Brookings Institution. Bill, we're talking with our last guest about how extreme politics has become, not only in, in America and Canada, all over the world. Is the center gone? Has the center disappeared to the extremes? Uh, not entirely. Uh, the center is weaker than it was a couple of generations ago, in part uh, because the political parties used to overlap in their ideologies, and uh, they pretty well sorted themselves out. And once you have more uniform parties, then more extreme sentiments tend to take over. Is the victory in the center? Uh, there's a potential victory in the center, uh, but uh, but somebody has to present the American people with a new set of choices. Because if people are asked to choose between extreme views of one party or the other, they'll make their choice accordingly. Your thought of where America finds itself right now, specifically the Republican Party, uh, do they design a new Republican Party or do they, do they continue with the party of Trump? Uh, I don't think they have a choice, frankly. Uh, the Republican base is with Trump. If you ask them, do they think of themselves as more Republicans or more supporters of Donald Trump? Uh, they say the latter overwhelmingly. Uh, the Republican Party whether it likes it or not, is now the party of social conservatives and working class people, mostly white, but not entirely. That's the party. Uh, and uh, so I think the next nominee is going to have to take that into account. And traditional Republican elites 
uh, used to dominate, at least their agenda dominated, and they can't count on doing that anymore, which is why a lot of business groups are now feeling politically homeless and are becoming much more bipartisan. So does this just splinterize the Republican Party? Does this just take them out of contention? I don't think it necessarily splinters the Republican Party. What it means is that the center of gravity of the Republican Party is shifted. And people who are uncomfortable with that shift are probably going to end up becoming moderate Democrats. And you could already see that in the election results from the suburbs uh, in 2020. Uh, obviously, the base is massive, which has influenced the, uh, the members of the Republican Party that we're seeing so far. Um, are the Republicans happy with the representation of Donald Trump, with, with what he is? Is there someone in the Republican Party that can represent the base and perhaps not tick off the rest of the world? Is that possible? Well, you have a, you have a bunch of Republican senators uh, who are testing out that proposition before our eyes. Uh, and names like uh, Josh Hawley uh, from Missouri, uh, Ted Cruz from Texas, uh, Senator Tom Cotton as well, uh, and there are others. And so a bunch of ambitious younger Republicans are trying to represent what I call Trumpism with a human face. That is, Trump. What does that look like? What does that look like, Bill? Well, what that look. What that looks like is uh, someone who who strongly advocates Donald Trump's policies on issues like immigration uh, and trade and America's role in the world, but without going out of his way to antagonize racial and ethnic minorities, women, etc. In other words, someone who knows how to behave more normally, uh, more conventionally. Now. Uh, your previous guest suggested that Trump's demeanor was part of his appeal, which is true up to a point, but it's also what drove so many swing voters away from the Republican Party in 2020. And uh, there's a mountain of survey evidence to suggest that the swing voters liked what Trump had done, but they didn't like Trump. So why not, as a Republican Party, sell that? Why not move on that? Because many said that, you know, his his dealings with China and such were certainly was a wake-up call for the world, yet, unfortunately, every day he'd get up and blow another toe off. Uh, so there was always a distraction. It was always all about him. Uh, isn't this all about Republican policy and less about the personality that's delivering it? Is there that balance there? Well... Uh, the issue isn't just getting your base to vote for you. It's getting a majority to vote for you. And it turned out that a president who behaved the way Donald Trump behaved antagonized the voters who made the difference between victory and defeat. Uh, I'm a lifelong Democrat, and I can tell you we lost when we paid all of our attention to our base and none of it to the people we needed to attract or retain in order to be a stable majority. And Republicans are in danger of doing exactly the same thing. So it's, it's not just Trump's policies. Those can be retained, but you know, if, if you have someone who presents himself as Donald Trump Jr., and of course, there is a Donald Trump Jr., mm-hmm. but I'm speaking metaphorically here. Uh, but uh, uh, people who present themselves that way are going to antagonize a lot of suburban voters and especially women, uh, including the suburban voters who are not uncomfortable uh, with Trump's policies and the kind of change within the Republican Party that he represents. Bill Galston has been with his governance studies, Brookings Institution. Bill, thank you for the time and in, in, uh, insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Eric Elper with us, music and pop culture expert. Uh, Mary Wilson of the Supremes has passed away, founding member, and Eric is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, everything's great, except for kind of waking up to this very sad news, especially because, you know, Mary Wilson just got on YouTube not even a week or two ago saying that 2021 was going to be a 
big year for her. She was mm-hmm. going to be starting to release videos of her and her Supremes um, and and old film footage and television footage that have never been seen before to talk about what life was like back then, what segregation was like back then, what music was like back then when you were a woman, all in conjunction with Black History Month. And there was also mm. talk that she was going to follow up um, her amazing autobiography called Dream Girls, which that led to a Broadway show. So this was kind of a shock to a lot of people that were fans of the, of, of the Supremes and just good music in general. Many, when they think of the Supremes, they think of Diana Ross. What was Mary Wilson's role in this band? What was her significance here? Do you remember that scene in Spinal Tap where Derek Small, the bassist, said that he's the lukewarm water of the group? He's not too hot and not too cold. (laughs) Mary Wilson was that. You had Florence Ballard, who was a real little bit of a wild child, um, and, you know had a lot of issues not only in the group but later on in her life with drug and alcohol abuse unfortunately had a lot of legal issues was just kind of on her own planet sometimes she was the one that was i think took the most bitterness when it came to the world outside she was the one who was truly upset about what was going on um with the economy with the racial divide politically what was happening in De- in Detroit where they were from and America in general Diana Ross wanted to be a star and mm. she was a star she was born a star she had all the good things coming to her she had the relationship with Barry Gordy who is the founder of of um of Motown Records she was the front woman she got asked to do all the interviews she wore the sparkling jewelry and the best dresses and the best fur coats Mary Wilson was in the middle of all of that she wasn't too high she wasn't too low she was the one that kept the band going and even after long after the Supremes broke up in the 70s and 80s and 90s and still to this day I, I talked to her um, maybe about a year ago when she was still out there promoting a greatest hits package from the Supremes, she was the one that kept the flame alive and the torch going for the Supremes. Hmm. Um, we remember that it was a few years back they attempted a reunion thing, and that all kind of fell through and fell flat. I mean, you know, there were alternate Supremes brought in. Whatever happened to that? Uh, Diana Ross um, has put a stop to anything when it comes to a reunion Um, because if she is going to go out on the road, if she's going to do any promotion, it's going to be about her. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, it was a very rough and wonky time. I mean, these women who were essentially young girls, I mean, they were 14, 15, 16, 17 years old when they started hanging out at Motown, desperately trying to get a record deal without knowing anything because nobody knew anything. It was... You know, the music industry was pretty fresh when it came to current, alive, you know, R&B, pop music. Rock wasn't even around, you know. Well, I mean, maybe it was, but not in the format of like the 60s, back in the in the late 50s. So they had no idea what, what was going to become of them. Um, and they had no idea how to look, act, talk in interviews, walk, sing to small crowds. Or well, didn't Barry Gordy have like a finishing school at Motown he to did. sort of cover all of he that? Did. It was it was a factory line, you know, that that factory aspect of, of teaching people how to do certain things outside of writing and singing songs was all based around the Ford factory and GM factory in Detroit. He thought, well, if they can do it, maybe we can do it mechanically like the music industry. So I think for, you know, for for the reunion, I think Diana Ross might have thought that she would have had to go backwards and mm. give up something when unfortunately, you know, Mary Wilson and, and whoever else wanted to be in the group didn't have that same feeling. I uh, only got a few seconds left. Who yeah. owns this catalog? A lot of music here. Uh, Universal owns the catalog, but uh, Mary Wilson has had a lot of great and successful fights in making sure that the Supremes will always get paid no matter what format the music is in, whether it's cassette, CD, or music streaming services, unlike a lot of artists who gave up those rights back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, anything come out of this? Documentaries, uh, biography, anything like that, do you think, in the near future? 
Yeah, I think probably in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that actual film footage that Mary was talking about appearing from her estate. I think they just need to do the funeral, get through a couple of uh, dotted I's and cross T's and figure it out from there. But I think this is going to be a pretty big year for the Supremes. Eric Alper with us, music and pop culture expert, talking about the passing of Mary Wilson, original member of the Supremes. Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. Always great to talk to you. We'll talk soon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.